Good morning, Sun Valley. Good to have you all here today. Even if you're all sitting in the back half of the auditorium, I'm not sure if I forgot to shower. I thought I showered, but <clears throat> well, you know, I say this. I say this too often, but I'm going to say it again. Uh, I uh, love this story. This is and. <laughs> I think I said it two weeks ago. This is my favorite story in the Book of Mark. Um, but there's so many good elements to this story and all the stories in Mark, really, that it seems like every time we open it, it's like my favorite story. But it is such a wonderful, wonderful story. And I hope that you'll be blessed by um, digging into it a little bit deeper with me here in a minute. I, I'm not sure about you, but I assume this is true, that over the past couple of years, uh, you've known someone who has died uh, for, for whatever reason, but they passed away. And because of the pandemic, we've all had probably a better chance of that happening. Um, and because of that, we, because of the reality of death, uh, we have this ongoing concern in our lives about that about that step in our own life, right? We're told that the fear of dying is one of the number one fears that people have. Uh, in the book of Job, chapter 18, verse 14, it refers to death as the king of terrors. That's pretty descriptive, isn't it? The king of terrors. It's something that, that none of us really are all that comfortable with, uh, and the world certainly isn't. Um, but how do we, as Christians, or humans even, address the fear of dying in our lives and dying in the lives of others? What do you say to someone who's facing death? What do you think of when you're facing death, if you ever have? Um, how are we who have no real escape with our date from death deal with this great undeterrable chaos that we're all facing. I think the Gospel of Mark has the answer to that great question. And I, I hope and pray that the, the Lord Spirit will uh, make that clear to you today as we uh, open his word here this morning. As you know, Jesus proved his claims to be superior to death when he rose from the grave. Uh, the New Testament records that in numerous places, but Jesus himself not only conquered death, he, he offered that same victory, that ultimate victory, to all those who would put their faith and trust in him. So if you have embraced Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you've embraced him as the God of heaven, the Savior of your soul, then you can claim that same victory that he promised to all who believe in him, embrace uh, him. You remember what Jesus said to Martha, right, in John 11? Uh, Lazarus had died, Martha's brother. Jesus said this, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. It's a bit of a quandary there for us to consider. Do you believe this, Jesus asked Martha. So today's passage really is a preview of that promise made to Martha 
what we've just heard read here. And it's, it's, a, it's really a, a presentation of the hope that we find in Christ alone. Um, and we see here Mark's claims of Jesus being the solution to all chaos, including death, if you can believe that. So not only has Mark been presenting Jesus chapter after chapter as the solution to our chaos, whatever it may be, now he adds this to it. Jesus is the solution to the chaos of death. So if it interests you, you may want to pay attention in the next few minutes as we see what the Holy Spirit has for us today. This really, the idea of presenting Jesus as the solution to the chaos of death is Mark's ace, if you can think of it that way. It's his ace in his hand. He's been saving this ace until just this moment. He's presented Jesus as the solution to the chaos of bad weather, to the solution of disease, to the solution of uh, being lame. He's the solution to family problems. He's presented Jesus as that. Now his ace is, if you haven't believed me yet, Jesus is the solution to death. All right? That's just Mark's strategy here, in case you're interested. As you know, as we have you heard this passage read from Mark 5, there are two primary players in this story besides Jesus uh, who were affected by Jesus. And obviously, there's others who were, have been affected by this story uh, besides these two, uh, like you and me, for example. But these two who were primarily affected by Jesus were from opposite ends of Jewish society. One was a nameless woman who was ceremonially unclean and an outcast. That would be the bottom of Jewish society. Jewish law restricted anyone with her condition from public worship, and public worship was central to public life. So if you came into physical contact with someone like this woman, you would be declared unclean and you yourself would be unable to participate for seven days. This woman, forever, as long as she had this disease, she was disqualified from public worship. She would be ostracized by the people in her community because they wouldn't want to become unclean. They wouldn't want to become disqualified for public worship. So she was cut off from family, friends, worship, had no money. She was in poor health. It says she spent everything she had on doctors to no avail. She was at the bottom. And then Jairus, what did it say about him? Well, he was a ruler in the synagogue in Capernaum. And if you're a ruler in the synagogue, guess what you are? You're at the top end of society. This woman was at the bottom. Jairus was at the opposite end of the social spectrum. He was rich. He was powerful. He was well-known. Probably, probably, probably popular. But guess what? He also had a great need, didn't he? His only daughter, according to Luke 8, 42, it was his only daughter. She was deathly ill, literally on her deathbed. So the dire condition of his daughter brought Jairus down to an equal playing field with this nameless sick woman. While Jairus had known 12 years of joy and happiness with his daughter, 
During that same 12-year period, this woman had been suffering rejection, ostracism, pain, sorrow. They were both in despair, and they had this in common. Maybe Jesus can help me. <laughs> These were two desperate people, weren't they? For different reasons, each with their own personal chaos. One had a 12-year-long illness. One had a 12-year-old daughter that was about ready to die. Socially miles apart, but their souls were bound together. This story reveals two important truths. The first is that God, bring, God brings faith in the hearts of the people he touches, and he causes that faith to grow. First thing you're going to see in this story, as I unpack it for you, is that God brings faith into the hearts of the people he touches and then causes that faith to grow and develop. Secondly, we're going to see that Jesus deals with all forms of chaos, including death. Jesus is the answer to our chaos, including our impending death. Those of you who have that date in the future may want to, you know, take note here on the matter. So let's dig into this and see what the Holy Spirit will teach us. First of all, from verses 21 through 24, we have Jesus showing his desire to help people. Jesus's desire to help people. One of the most fundamental elements of biblical Christology, that is Christology, the study of Christ, one of the most fundamental elements of biblical Christology is this, the loving character of Christ, right? There are many other more theological truths that would come up first, but nothing more basic than this truth, the loving character of Jesus Christ. We know among all the things we know about Jesus that he cares deeply for people. You can't read a page in the gospels without seeing his care and concern and love, affection for hurting people, no matter who they are. In fact, listen to this, leaving the glory of heaven was motivated by his love for people. I'll say it this way, his humanity happened because he loved you. Jesus became human because he loves us. So a, a basic component of the, of the study of Christ is first understanding he loves people. He cares about people. He came to seek and save the lost. He came to give his life for us. He came to conquer our great enemies of Satan and death. He loves people and desires to help people. I think before we can move forward, you must grasp this truth. Jesus actually loves you. It's not just a cute saying that you might have on your bumper sticker or see on somebody's bumper sticker, it's actually true. Jesus loves me. The thing that we, first song we learned, Jesus loves me, this I know, right? This is what the Bible tells us, right? Jesus loves people. Two stories in today's passage, Jairus and the ill woman are really one story. Mark intentionally and uh, intimately connects these two stories to help us understand something more significant about Jesus. These two stories reveal Jesus' deep desire to help every sort of person, not just 
those who are acceptable in society, those who are well thought of in society, those who are wealthy and have their place established in society, but those at the bottom, those whom no one knows of, those who are poor and destitute and outcast, Jesus cares for everybody on each end of that spectrum, top and bottom. And he desires to help them all because they all need help. Doesn't matter where you are in society, you need help, right? So these two stories highlight Jesus's mercy, his gentleness, his affection, compassion, sensitivity, and love. We also see in these stories Jesus's power to solve chaos mercifully lovingly and a deep desire to do so you know sometimes I think we we say prayers and and try to convince God to help us convince God that you know we're worth helping you know Lord this you know can you please help my grandma she's really a nice lady she's a likable person you know we try we come at Christ that way in our prayers now you know what all we need to say is Jesus help me Help my grandma, help my neighbor, help. Why? Because that is innate to him. He wants to help us. He desires to help people like us. Jesus had left Capernaum, if you remember, just a couple days before this story. You remember when he went across Capernaum the first day, the first time we read this in Mark, they ran into a big storm and He used that opportunity to teach his disciples about trusting him in the midst of all sorts of chaos. He calmed the storm, changed the weather with a word, be calm. And it was. And then when they arrived on the shore, they ran into a demon-possessed man who scared everybody half to death. And Jesus calmed that crisis. He he solved that chaos, rescued that, that dear man, threw out the demons, and the man became whole. And then they traveled right back to Capernaum and run into this situation. It's it's really interesting to see that Jesus seems to, in the Gospels, move from one chaotic scene to the next. In fact, think about this for a second with me. Do you know any story in the Gospels where Jesus isn't solving chaos? There isn't one. (laughs) Jesus is always solving chaos everywhere he goes. You say, well, what about, you know, these really idyllic times when he's just sitting around an oak tree talking to his disciples? When did that happen? How about this, the Garden of Gethsemane? Was that chaotic? Probably one of the more chaotic times in the life of Christ. Every single record of Jesus includes some form of human chaos. What's Mark's point? If you're a human, you got chaos. And there's only one solution to that chaos, and it's Christ Jesus. You know why you have chaos? Because you're a sinner, just like everybody else in the room. And sin equals chaos. See, this is, Mark is presenting the solution to chaos here, and then he, re, he introduces this final and ultimate chaos of death that he presents Jesus as the solution as. So Jesus arrives in Capernaum, we see in verse 21, after going across the sea, healing or rescuing this demon-possessed man, and he shows up and there's a bunch of people there who need him again. And as usual, he ministers to them. But something different happens here, Um, extraordinary really. A ruler of the local synagogue in Capernaum walks through the crowd, and if you know anything about Jewish hierarchy, If you had a certain robe on, if you were a ruler, you got out of the way. 
when the guy shows up. So the ruler shows up in his rulerly robes and everybody just kind of breaks the, the crowd and he walks straight up to Jesus. And he did the, the, the atypical thing, the abnormal thing. He bowed instead of argued. He bowed and pleaded instead of arguing and accusing. This man, Jairus, was from the synagogue. It doesn't say he was a Pharisee, but he was a ruler of the synagogue. In other words, he was in their camp. He, he was with the group who accused Jesus of blaspheming, of having the power of Satan to do his miracles. He was in that group. It's most likely that Jairus had ill intention towards Jesus up to this point. And yet here he is, walking towards Christ, the, the, the crowd is parting to make way for this important person, and he bows down at Jesus' feet. This is a showstopper, people. This is like something serious must be afoot. Let's, hear, let's, let's see what this is all about. It's probably what was going through the minds of the people watching. Jairus was there, the ruler of the synagogue, bowing before someone he had opposed time and again. So why was he there? Why was Jairus there? Put yourself in Jairus' shoes. What would it take for you to eat humble pie and do what he did? How about this? Despair. Hopelessness. My daughter is about to die. Would you, you would do the same thing, wouldn't you? You would swallow your pride, and when you go to the only person you hoped would have a chance to save her. People do all sorts of desperate things when measures are necessary, don't they? Desperate times means what? Desperate measures. This was a desperate time for Jairus. It must have been an amazing scene to watch, seeing this powerful, rich man humbly bowing before Jesus, pleading that he would come, pleading that the very man a week earlier he had opposed. It doesn't mean that Jairus became a believer. It doesn't mean that he'd become a disciple. It simply means this, he was desperate. That's what it means. Jairus' humility and actions were not unlike many who come to Jesus today. Many come today not because they believe that Jesus is the Son of God, not that Jesus is anything special, but they come because they're desperate. Jairus most likely didn't love Jesus. In fact, he may have disliked him up to this point. Certainly didn't believe he was God. He came out of desperation. He came out of a need. Which, which leads me to say this, despair and need are often the prelude to grace. Have you ever noticed that? That despair and need are preludes to God's grace in your life? Have you ever noticed that so many people who come to Christ come because they're desperate? Things like divorce, death, illness. You name the chaos, that's the thing usually that brings people to Jesus. Not their love and adoration for him. A week ago they despised him. What gives? Here it is. Desperation, need. 
We learn from this story that there actually is a prerequisite to grace. And how long we thought there wouldn't. We, we would argue against such things. What do you mean a prerequisite to grace? Here it is, humility. You remember what James said? James, the one who's mentioned in this story? God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So there is actually a prerequisite to grace. It's humility. No one comes into the kingdom of heaven pridefully. There's going to be zero pride in heaven. For by grace you have been saved through faith as a gift so that no one can boast. Right? There's no no room for pride. Prerequisite of grace is humility. Jesus desires the same thing today. He, he, he desires humility. We, we read in, in Hebrews 13 that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So, if this was his desire then, it's his, his desire now. He desires humility in his people. He is still a friend of sinners, still slow to anger, still doesn't treat us as our sins deserve. He still demonstrates perfect loving kindness. And so we could say, are you in need? Are you desperate? Jesus desires to help. Go to Jesus just like Jairus did in humility. Leave the pride at the door and simply go to him and say, I need. Please help. And what was Jesus' response to, to Jairus? Well, I thought last week, uh, no. He enthusiastically embraced him, didn't he? Wow. Jesus desires to help people. Secondly, Jesus is willing to be interrupted. Verses 25 through 34. Verse 25, and there was a woman. There was a woman who showed up who was sick, who was desperate. One of our least favorite things besides paying taxes is being interrupted. Are you with me on that? Yeah. <laughs> we get frustrated when the car in front of us is going slower than the speed limit. You ever feel like doing the, the speed limit sign to the person through their rearview mirror? Speed limit's 35, 35, not 27. And they're, you know, don't they know I got to be there in five minutes? It's their fault I'm late, not mine. I, I'd left five minutes late, right? <laughs> we get frustrated with interruption from people and circumstances all the time, and we all know what it's like. Listen to this. If there was ever a time when Jesus needed to be in a hurry, wasn't it now? Please speed up, Jesus. My daughter is dying, and, and literally seconds matter here. And you're going to stop and talk to this woman who's been sick for over a decade? You think she can wait another hour? Get in line, lady. It's kind of the attitude that I would have if I were Jairus. But her condition wasn't an emergency at all. Jesus knew this, though, completely. He, he knew the dire condition of Jairus' daughter. He knew the, the anxiety that Jairus was feeling, and yet he stopped anyways to minister to this one who came, this lady. 
It says in this story that she didn't intend to interrupt. It, it, in fact, she didn't want to make a scene at all. She wanted to get in, touch the robe, and get out in hopes that no one would notice. So it wasn't like she was looking for attention. She was looking for help. But look what the, look what the text says is the reason she was trying to get in and out incognito. Verse 28, for she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. She was under the impression that if she just touched his clothes, things would be fine. She'd be healed immediately. She had heard, because she's a resident of Capernaum and a few things have happened there already, right? <laughs> a lot of good things have happened there already. So she had heard that power pulsed out of Jesus. You get near him and you, you get healed. And lo and behold, the second she touched him, she felt it happened to her. Without a word coming out of Christ's mouth, without presumably him knowing it was her, she touched his garment and it was like an electrical shock went through her and healed her immediately. The same power that healed the leper whom she may have known because she was an outcast also in Capernaum, like that leper. The same power that restored the paralyzed man, calmed the storm, rescued the demon-possessed man, came pulsing through her body in that instant and healed her completely without Jesus speaking a word or seeing her face. <laughs> That's pretty impressive. But then the unexpected happened and to the dismay of Jairus and maybe this woman, Jesus stops. <laughs> he stops and this woman goes, oh no, you know, like hand in the cookie jar, kind of feeling. But Jairus, think of his dismay. His daughter's life was hanging by a thread and every second counted. But Jesus stopped in the middle of this thronging crowd, I mean thronging, it says thronging, it was thousands of people, and literally hundreds were touching him every minute. You know, his disciples were jostling in and out of him. Bob was there. Bob was, couldn't get him off of Jesus. And then he says this, which is why his disciple says, What? Who touched you? How about everybody here? Jesus? But Jesus stopped. And at this moment, the, the woman's heart was probably pounding out of her chest for a couple reasons. One, she had been instantaneously healed. Can you put yourself in her shoes? No longer ostracized, no longer outcast, no longer not being able to see family and friends and neighbors. All of a sudden readmitted into worship in an instant. Your heart might be a little excited also. But secondly, she knew that Jesus knew that she had touched him, which probably scared her a bit, maybe embarrassed her. He knew he was going to bring it up. He knew he, she knew he was going to ask questions. Remember, she wasn't supposed to be in crowds. She was an outcast. She was doing something illegal. Shouldn't have been there. She was unclean. 
But I think also the moment that Jesus singled her out, she probably was stunned that Jesus was willing to be touched by someone who was an outcast, who was unclean, which made Jesus unclean, right? Jesus was well aware of all circumstances involved in this moment, from the woman's condition and her past to the condition of Jairus' daughter, which was dire, just like he knew the condition of Lazarus when he was told, hey, Lazarus is sick, please come heal him. Remember Lazarus, your friend? Yeah, he's sick, please come heal him. You know, it's, it's like an hour walk from where he was. And what did Jesus say to Lazarus's friends? Oh, I'll be right there. No. He said, uh, I'll see him in a couple days. You know what Jesus was saying? We studied this back when we studied John. Jesus was saying this to those who came to get him to go heal Lazarus. I'm going to let him die today. That's what he was saying. Same thing he was saying to Jairus. Uh, I'm going to let your daughter die here. <laughs> Wouldn't made me happy. Uh, what's going on here? I thought Jesus was desiring to help people. I thought he was the solution to chaos. And here he's willing and allowing and planning that people die? Jesus stopped knowing that because he stopped, that little girl would die. But he stopped for reasons that were glorious and so important. He, he, he stopped and welcomed this woman's interruption because of the impact it would have on her, and not only her, but on Jairus, Jairus' whole family, the entire crowd, and this congregation at Sun Valley Church on this day 2,000 years later. That's why he stopped so that you would experience what Jairus did. Jesus knew that this was a divine appointment. He was willing to be interrupted for the greater good of not just this woman, but of Jairus even, and of us. Are we willing to have our busy lives interrupted for divine appointments? Many times we act as though our schedule is the most important thing. We need to get certain things done in a certain time frame because it's important that I do so. Which causes us frustration when someone, you know, pulls in front of you in traffic or your toddler comes up and interrupts your busy schedule? Interruptions cause frustration. But unlike us, Jesus knew the plan and what was it that he intended to accomplish in the lives of all present, all concerned, including us. He knew that stopping would be an occasion for the glory of God in the lives of these two particular individuals and everyone present, everyone watching. There was benefit to this interruption. I wonder how many blessings we've missed because we've refused to be interrupted. We can have confidence that God's behind every interruption. Can we actually say that? 
that God is behind every interruption? Yes, and we can say this, we can even go further. God brings the interruption. There are no interruptions would be a, even a better way to say it. There are no such things as interruptions in our lives. Whether it's from your two-year-old or your cranky neighbor or that slow driver or the red light, there are no interruptions. They are divine appointments that God uses to bless his people, to reveal more of himself to us who need him desperately. Interruptions are directly from God, so we must not push them away. We must embrace them, look for God's purpose in them, see his hand at work. God is willing to be interrupted. Thirdly, from verse 35 through 40, we see that Jesus is committed to deepening our faith. Jesus is committed to deepening our faith. 35, while he was still speaking, that was, Jesus was speaking to this woman he had just healed. Someone from the ruler's house came and said, your daughter is dead, why trouble the teacher any further? Can you imagine that moment in Jairus' mind? Well, let's get to that in a second. The first thing I want to show you here under this point that Jesus is committed to deepening our faith is this. Our faith starts with him. Jesus initiates faith. Think about the faith of this woman. Would you say it was solid? It was superstitious at best. It was ignorant. It was laughable, her faith. She thought that if she snuck up behind this guy, Jesus, and touched his robe, she would be healed. That's called magic. It's not how Jesus heals. She was thinking that there was some kind of magic in this guy's clothes. As small and unfaith-like as her faith was, Jesus said, listen, your faith has made you well. <laughs> what does this mean? It means that Jesus has initiated her faith. You remember this woman lived in Capernaum. Had Jesus been there for, before? Had he done miracles there before? Had he preached sermons there before? Yes, yes, and yes. This woman no doubt had heard Jesus, and faith comes, according to Romans 10, faith comes by what? Hearing the word of Christ. The, the seed of faith, that mustard seed of faith, had been planted in the heart of that woman by Jesus. And it was growing. Jairus' faith wasn't much better, was it? But Jesus was initiating his faith as well. He was skeptical. He was the opposition. But we see that Jesus is the one behind our faith. What does Ephesians 2, 8, 9 say about this? That faith is a gift from God. The word of Christ is what initiates faith. And God honors this 
this type of infantile, laughable, ignorant faith even today in this room. When children come to faith in Jesus, they know very little about Jesus. Their Christology is ridiculous, literally infantile. They can't explain the atonement, the Trinity, or anything else that the rest of us have trouble with also. And yet children are saved every day with their simple faith. They couldn't explain to you the origin of Christ if their life depended on it, and yet they're saved. How so? You remember just a couple chapters ago, Jesus said that every single person's faith begins at the mustard seed level. Everybody starts there. No one enters the kingdom of God as a scholar. They don't. Everybody comes in the same door of infancy. Mustard seed faith. No one needs to have all the doctrines of Scripture in doctrinal statement form before the grace of God finds them. The thief on the cross knew very little Christology, right? He knew that Jesus was innocent and that Jesus loved him. Evidently, it was enough to get him to heaven. He didn't have to explain the Trinity (laughs) or the hypostatic union. All he had to do was know that Jesus loved him and offered him to, to this thief if he would but believe. And that day, turns out the thief went to paradise. You see, back to the story. Jesus demanded to find the identity of the person who touched him, not for his sake. He already knew who it was. It was for her sake, for Jairus' sake, for the disciples' sake, for the crowd's sake, for our sake. He wanted to expose this woman. Let me tell you what what was actually going on in this scenario in terms of Jesus knowing who touched him. Jesus was saying, where is the one who touched me? She disappeared to the cross. Oh, there you are. Mm, Come here. That's what was going on. It wasn't like, oh, I wonder who touched me. Who was that? No. It was you. Come here. He knew exactly who it was. Now he wanted to expose her to teach her, Jairus, and everybody else what it means to have faith. He says this to the girl, the woman, the sick lady. Daughter, she wasn't a a girl, daughter, your faith has healed you. He didn't say your touch healed you or your superstition healed you or my magic healed you. He said your faith, as small, simple, ignorant, laughable as your faith is, that faith is acceptable to me and I heal you. This is why Jesus exposed her. She is a picture of all humanity who come to Jesus. We are all in desperate need, aren't we, of a touch from the Savior? We are all desperately ill. We have all chased other things like this woman did, seeking some kind of healing. In our case, purpose, hope. We we look to what the world has to offer to find what's there. 
But Jesus is the only one who can actually fill our hearts, just like Jesus was the only one who could solve this woman's chaos. And when we come, we don't need to fear that he's going to turn away because we don't know enough, we don't have a good enough doctrinal statement, we're not committed enough, or we're too selfish, or we're a social outcast. No. Evidently, none of those things are criteria. Coming is criteria. <laughs> Come unto me, you who are weary and heavy laden, and what? I'll check out to see if your resume is okay. Is that what he said? No. And I'll give you rest. Come. The only thing we need to fear is letting Jesus pass without reaching out. That's the only thing to fear. So Jesus initiates faith, and secondly, Jesus grows faith. Just about the time when Jesus healed and restored this woman, some guys approached Jairus and said, Jairus rather, and said, hey, your daughter's died. Stop bothering the teacher. Let's go. Can you imagine his heart at that moment? Crushed. Maybe angry. If Jesus wouldn't have been so easily distracted, if he would have moved along the path more quickly, if this lady wouldn't have butted in and taken my place in line, but here we have the highlight, the climax, that dramatic moment in the story. Jesus grabs hold of Jairus, maybe by the collar, when he, he saw his head hang in despair, when he heard the announcement of the death of his daughter, he says, hey, look me in the eye. Don't be afraid, just believe. It's like when you're, when you're crossing that high wire, don't look down, look me in the eye, just believe. That's it. Don't look at your circumstances. Look at me and believe. So I want, you to, I want you to dig a little deeper in with me here because the story was written for us. It happened for them, but it was written for us. I want you to see what Mark wanted his readers to see in Rome in the first century. I want you to see what, what the Holy Spirit wants us in the 21st century to see. Jairus saw it, the disciples saw it, the crowds saw it. You see, Jairus came also to Jesus with infantile faith, wishful thinking, skeptical thinking even, maybe even oppositional thinking. Jairus's hopes may have been buoyed when he saw the healing of this bleeding woman, but he still remained ignorant as to the identity of Christ. And here's the issue. Jesus now challenges Jairus to move his faith from just healing to resurrection. Just from simple healing, which Jesus can do without even knowing it happened. He touched the robe and she was healed. From that simple healing all the way to what? Did you say? Resurrection. That's a massive shift, in case you're not aware. It's a little different between getting over a cold and coming out of the grave. But that's what we see here. This required Jairus to acknowledge, listen, that Jesus was God. The one who opposed him the week before, the one who was a participant 
in accusing Jesus of blasphemy and having his power come from Satan, now was required to believe that this one, Jesus of Nazareth, was actually God, the author of life. That's where Jesus took Jairus. From believing in what he saw with his eyes to taking a more significant step of faith to where his heart embraced Jesus as God, the author of life. The only one who can give life is that author of life. This is radically different territory, and I hope you see it. To move your prayer from, please heal my daughter, Jesus, to please raise her from the dead, Jesus, is miles apart. This is the prayer Jesus wants each of us to pray. Not just, please solve my problems, Jesus, but please give me life, Jesus. That's the prayer that you're called to pray, isn't it? That I'm called to pray. Give me life. People come to see Jesus for all sorts of reasons. And not all those reasons would be acceptable to the theologians in the room. But they come because they're in despair. They come because they're tired. They come because they've tried everything else. But they come. And if they come in humility, Jesus is there responding. Both of the people in this story had very ignorant and selfish motives. Neither of them came particularly interested in Jesus as a person, but they each ended up believing he was God because Jesus initiates faith and helped faith grow. This is what he does. Jesus had a purpose for this woman's life and it went beyond physical healing. She had come incognito, hoping to shrink back and slither back unnoticed into the crowd and hope to continue her, her selfish life. But Jesus intended to bring her out in order to draw him to himself, not just temporarily, but forever. He wanted her to grow. The word here in verse 34, when Jesus said, daughter, your faith has made you well, that word well is sozo in Greek. The very same word used for spiritual transformation. Jesus was saying, your little insignificant faith has saved your soul. Oh, it's healed you. That's a byproduct. But your soul is changed forever. Fourth point. Jesus is able to solve every chaos. Verses 41 through 43. Let me read 41 and 42 for you. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age, and they were immediately overcome with amazement. So this story concerns an arena of Jesus' powers that have not yet been shown. That is the conquest of death. We have not seen that up to this point, have we? The new territory. conquering the last enemy, the great enemy, <laughs> the, the terror, as Job calls it. When Jesus raised Jairus' daughter from the dead, he put the world on notice that he was Lord of death and life. The Lord of life has showed up. Pay attention. 
First of all, we can see that Jesus handles chaos. I mean, if we haven't seen it by now, we're not paying attention. Every single story is about him handling chaos. He's the answer. I want you to hear me on this, friends. Listen closely. The solution to your chaos isn't necessarily Jesus removing it, as much as you might want that. It's Jesus joining you in your chaos. That's how he solves your chaos. He, he was in the boat. He was on the shore. He was in the house of this young lady. He joins us in our chaos. Our perception of chaos changes the moment we take our eyes off the chaos and place them on Christ. What was once a terrible situation can now become that thing that is viewed as a tool God is using to transform me into the image of his dear son. So what is in your life? What chaos is in your life that maybe if you change your perspective, you could see that God's actually up to something with that chaos to make you more like Jesus? High likelihood. <laughs> Secondly, Jesus transforms people, humble people. And he uses chaos to do it. Do you notice all the people changed in the Gospel of Mark? have been people who have had terrible chaos going on. What we see in the stories here of Jesus' healing throughout the book, every single time, without exception, is immediate transformation. Not partial healing. The lame man he healed in chapter two didn't have to limp around for three weeks until his legs got strong. No, he was healed fully, completely, immediately. Immediate transformation. Strong legs, able to jump, probably higher than most of us. The leper, the man with the withered hand, the storm at sea, the demon-possessed man, the bleeding woman, now Jairus' daughter, were all changed immediately. She got up and walked, it says, immediately. Why? What's the point? Why include that? Because Jesus, when he touches you, you're changed. That's why. When anyone encounters Christ in the midst of chaos, things change immediately. When, when Jesus saves your soul, good friends, your life changes. Observable, concrete, objective changes take place. There's, there's no more of this common, oh, she accepted Jesus when she was in junior high, so I know she's saved, even though it doesn't seem like anything's ever changed in our life. Friends, no change, no Jesus. Sorry. When Jesus does something, things change. Every time. Not every other time, every time. Jesus healed this woman, this little girl. Both experienced what every single person who has been touched by Christ experienced. Listen, the work of God alone. They had nothing to do with it. They had no part in it just like we have no part in our salvation. God the Father chooses, God the Son calls, and the Holy Spirit converts. Verses 41 through 42 are spectacular. Remember the mourners, they were laughing at Jesus because he said she was sleeping. But Jesus took the inner three, Peter, James, and John, along with the parents into the room to observe the miracle for themselves. Jesus used very long, a very loving and affectionate term in Aramaic uh, for this young gal. 
Uh, Mark records Jesus saying, little girl. The literal is actually this, little lamb, get up. Little lamb, get up, is what Jesus said. And what happened next was amazing, stunning, shocking, really. Her eyes fluttered, then they opened, and then she gets up and starts walking around. The first face she saw was Jesus holding her hand, next mom and dad, and then three guys she didn't know standing in the back of the room with their mouths wide open. (laughs) She was transformed. They were astonished immediately with great astonishment. You remember the word mega? Talked about that a few weeks ago. Uh, Mega storm, mega calm. Well, that same word is used here. Not recorded in English, but in Greek it says mega astonishment. They were astonished with great astonishment. I tried to think of a way to describe this kind of astonishment that must have been in the room at that moment. And I I guess I could refer you to the March Madness NCAA men's basketball tournament that's down to the final four. Every year, without fail, there's some dramatic finish to a basketball game where some underdog gets the ball with two seconds left, they toss it the midline, and that guy heaves it up with the prayer, and it goes right through the hoop, nothing but net. And everybody in the stands is on the edge of their seat, and they're watching that ball go through the air, and and they scream and they yell, and the people that it was against, they put their heads down, I can't believe that went in. Mega astonishment is what was going on in that room. Peter, James, and John, they're watching, they'd seen Jesus do some healing, and they're going, this is interesting and new. Let's watch this. Looking around mom and dad. Ah! She, she's alive. Mega astonishment. They were hollering probably at the top of their lungs. Friends, Jesus changes people that he touches. We all have people that we love, friends, family, neighbors, co-workers, that are spiritually dead, don't we? You need to take them to Jesus or take Jesus to them. You need to introduce them to Jesus. He desires to help people. He's never in a hurry. He's never too busy. And he's committed to initiating their faith, deepening their faith and solving all of chaos, including death. Solving the chaos of death is what I promised to speak to you about today, and I'm here to tell you that that will one day be experienced by every Christian in the room, every true follower of Christ. One day we are going to close our eyes in death, and The next thing on the agenda is to hear these words, little lamb, get up. Little lamb, get up. Our eyes will open in that moment and the first face we'll see is Jesus. And I'm convinced, even though it's a common occurrence on the other side in heaven, that there's going to be mega amazement. 
and stuff like that in glory. Every time one of us hear those words and open our eyes, there's going to be mega astonishment. That's a miracle that's never going to get old. She lives! You know, that kind of stuff. And as usual, uh, we have um, on the first Sunday of every month an opportunity to think about why this can be. How is it that we can have our sins forgiven? How is it that we can be transformed with a word? How is it that Jesus can do this for us who deserve nothing? The answer is in the elements. These things that we serve you every month, the broken bread and the juice represent the broken body and spilt blood of Christ. They they represent everything that we need for life and godliness. They represent the transformation that comes only through Christ's death and resurrection. And so we, we come month after month taking these elements reminding ourselves of the goodness of God in Christ who desires to help us who wants to deepen our faith who wants us to grow in Christ likeness these elements move us along that path and so as you come this morning I want you to think about how this story of healing and life are represented in these elements. These are why we have hope. These are why we have life. So think about these things. Elders, as you come, we're going to read in your bulletins, I think it's in your bulletin on the overhead, a copy of the Heidelberg Catechism. Uh, I have forgotten mine down in the pew. I'm going to go get it. And the reason that we want to repeat the Heidelberg Catechism here this morning, which I don't know that we've ever done it, but it's, it's so that you can connect the dots between the elements and the love of Christ for you. Have you embraced Christ Jesus? Well, you'll recognize that as we take the elements. I'm gonna ask you to stand with me if you would right now And on the overhead or in your bulletin, we're going to see bold print and regular font. I'll read the regular font. But we begin with the bold print. This is the 75th and 76th question in the Heidelberg Catechism, which is just a review of Christian doctrine, but these two questions relate particularly to the Lord's Supper. So let's read together the question, and then I'll read you the answer, okay? Together. How does the Holy Supper remind and assure you that you share in Christ's one sacrifice on the cross and in all his benefits? That's a good question. How do you know? And what do these elements help you with? Well, here it is. In this way, Christ has commanded me and all believers to eat this broken bread and to drink this cup in remembrance of him. With this command come these promises. First, 
As surely as I see with my eyes the bread of the Lord broken for me and the cup shared with me, so surely his body was offered and broken for me and his blood poured out for me on the cross. Now, I, don't, I think it's in bold on the overhead, the, the second part of that answer, right? Let's read the second part of the answer and, and pay attention to the new life part, okay? Let's read this second part of the answer together. Second, as surely as I receive from the hand of the one who serves, taste with my mouth the bread and the cup of the Lord, given me as sure signs of Christ's body and blood, so surely he nourishes and refreshes my soul for eternal life with his crucified body and poured out blood. Right there. Let's read the question 76. What does it mean to eat the crucified body of Christ and to drink his poured out blood? Has that ever bothered you like it bothered the people in John 6? That sounds kind of off. Eating body and drinking blood? Well, here we go. It means to accept with a believing heart the entire suffering and death of Christ, thereby to receive forgiveness of sins and eternal life. But it means more. Through the Holy Spirit who lives both in Christ and in us, we are united more and more to Christ's blessed body. And so, although he is in heaven and we are on earth, we are flesh of his flesh and bone of his bone. Let's finish this together. And we forever live on and are governed by one spirit, and the members of our body are by one soul. Amen and amen. Let me read for you 1 Corinthians um, chapter 11. This is the Apostle Paul's uh, uh, communicating to his readers what the Lord's Supper means. And he says this, For I receive from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Oh Lord Christ, we are so thankful for your sacrificial death in our place. Thank you for <clears throat> broken body <clears throat> and spilt blood. Thank you that in eternity past, you determined to place your love and affection upon us, your people, and would come joining us in the human race, living the perfect life, dying a death we deserved to make it possible to have our sins forgiven, to be embraced by our Creator and our Lord Jesus Christ. We receive these now, these elements by faith, knowing that you represent yourself to us in them and strengthen our hearts and spirits also by them. We pray this in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.